Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Bear with my voice. It's as sick as yours are. <laughs> so may the Lord sustain it. One of the fights that we have had to fight in our age has been against those who want to take Christianity and make it primarily about this life now. Christianity is about this life now, but not primarily, not mainly. True Christianity lives now, but it always looks later. We are people who live with hope, and hope assumes that there's something later, not now, because who hopes for what he already sees? There's something later we don't see yet. It's still coming, and we're longing after that. Hebrews 9 calls us those who are eagerly waiting for Christ. That's you. Galatians 5 says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Romans 8 says that you and I are actually groaning alongside the rest of creation. Quote, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Christ says to us, wait, wait eagerly, but wait, not now, later. We, as people, but also in our time and place, we want the payout right now. <laughs> we don't want to wait, like children. We don't want to wait. We want it right now. We want to see it right here in front of us. And so there have been various emphases and forms even of Christianity that we call them in a big term, over-realized eschatology. But if that's meaningless, that's fine. It just means that we're trying to take what's promised to us later and make it now because we want it now. You are not living your best life right now. Praise God that that's not, not true. So that's the fight we have to fight. Always pushing. No, we don't have everything now. We're waiting. No, it's not mainly about this life, whether that's prosperity or whatever, but it's about the life to come. No, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. It's a continual battle in ourselves and among others. But when we're fighting or having a sort of contending for the faith, it's easy for us to overreact against the errors that we find out there. And that is true also in this case. We do have to maintain that Christianity is about hope. It is about what is yet to come. It does not finalize. Its terminus is not right here. But let's not overcorrect and say Christianity has nothing to say about your life right now. <laughs> that's not true, praise God. We don't want to overcorrect and say, well, there's a great joy that's coming in the future, but right now all there is for you is a dull, boring, lacking vitality sort of existence until you die or Christ returns, and then there's joy. That's not true either. Our Heavenly Father wants us to wait until Christmas to open all the presents. So they're not all open yet, but He's kind. And on Christmas Eve, He lets you open a few. 
That's the Christian life. We haven't opened all the presents yet, but we've opened some. There is a real joy. There are privileges and blessings and joys that we have in this life. I emphasize this because I think even in my own life, I remember as an unbeliever with sins that dominated my life, having the conscious thought, I could maybe give these sins up, but it would mean entering into a very monochromatic, boring, dull, lifeless kind of life that I would just have to endure while I'm here until I get to heaven. Those were my genuine thoughts. And looking back now, I know that those were coming from a forked tongue of the devil into my ear. But at the time, they seemed very legitimate. That Christianity has nothing at all to say for right now. You just endure it until you get to the pie in the sky. But that's not true. That also is a lie of the devil. Even though the best is yet to come, there is so much that is good here right now. In fact, Christianity offers for believers more than the devil can offer anyone even now. More than all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. There is a reason Jesus didn't bow the knee. It's not only because of the hope in the future, but because of the blessings of following God even now. They might look different than what you naturally want, but Christianity, although it looks into the future, we Christians have many present blessings, even if we're not always aware of it. And that exactly is what John the Apostle is pointing us to in this passage. You'll notice he says that if you're a believer, you have, right now, in the present tense, at least three immense blessings. Let's look at this in 1 John chapter 5. Starting in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God, talking about believers here, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Has, 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 and it's referring, as you see in the first verse, to whoever believes in the Son of God. True believer in the present has three immense privileges, blessings. It's hard to even use those words about them. They're so great. Notice that in this passage where the Apostle John is landing the plane of this letter, He's continuing to talk about the doctrinal test for the believer that we have to believe the truth about Christ. But notice that in this passage, there's no command. There's no rebuke. There's no imperative. He's not saying this is what you have to do and this is what you shouldn't do. It's implied, but it's not stated in this passage. He's just telling you the facts as they are. That if you are someone who believes in the Son of God as He's revealed in Scripture, the true Christ, if that's you, 
then you have, as a fact, right now, these three things. You may not feel like you have them. You may not have walked into this building consciously thinking about the fact that you have them. You may be more preoccupied at the moment with many things you do not have, like certain numbers in your bank account that seems like you need those to live on, or the next vehicle or house, career move, children, whatever. And not to minimize any of these things that we want to have, but John in this passage is telling you that you've, if those preoccupy you, you've forgotten these three immense things you already have. They're already yours. You walked in with them, you're going to walk out with them. They're going to be with you. You have them already. So following John's train, I'm not going to be commanding you, but instead what we want to do is just consider how wonderful it is to have these three things. He'll present the other side of it twice at least, saying if you don't believe in Christ, then you don't have these things. But primarily, this is a positive passage, and that's how we'll look at it. So, let's look at the three things we have right now as believers in Jesus Christ, starting there in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So the first thing you have is the testimony about Jesus Christ. If you wonder what that testimony is, we saw it last week. It is clearly the testimony about Jesus. It comes from God. We're not making it up. It came through his apostles. John talked about, even at the start of this letter, what we've seen, what we've heard. We've received it. We're conveying it to you comes from God through the apostles. We have it contained in Scripture. It is a testimony about Jesus. Last week, he talked about the three that testify, bear witness, to this testimony about Jesus, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The Holy Spirit of God takes the truths that are contained here in the Scriptures about Jesus, which we can summarize them as the water and the blood, the life of Jesus, baptism on and before that, baptism on, summary of the life of Jesus, of perfect obedience in our place. His blood, the death of Jesus upon the cross in the stead of sinners for all who trust in him. Of course, his resurrection is implied. The Spirit takes the, those facts, the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, drives them deep into our hearts. That's the testimony. It's a testimony about Jesus. Verse 9 spoke of it as quote, the testimony of God. So that is greater than when you watch the news, you're getting the testimony of man, which is important, but this is greater than that. It's a testimony of God. And since it's a testimony from God about Jesus, he starts our passage with whoever, whoever believes in the Son of God. So if you believe the truth about the Son of God, you've got that testimony. Now, you know the testimony. It's hard, it's hard to live in America within a hundred mile radius of us right now even and imagine someone who just never ever heard any of these things about Jesus. So you know data about the testimony that we talked about last week here in America. If you've been attending this church for any amount of time and you don't know the testimony about Jesus, the elders should probably remove me. <laughs> I'm not doing a good job at all. That's what I'm here for. I'm a proclaimer of the testimony about Jesus Christ as we have it in the scriptures. So everyone in this room knows the data. Everyone here knows the testimony. 
But in our passage, it's not just a matter of you knowing the testimony, because that's true of believers. That's also true of many unbelievers. What sets you apart as a believer is what he says at the beginning of our passage. You don't just know the testimony. You have the testimony in yourself. That is different. What does it mean that you walked in here having the testimony about Christ in yourself? Notice he doesn't say whoever hears about the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Not true. Even demons in that case would be people who have the testimony in themselves and they do not. So it's not just knowing. It's not just hearing the testimony or knowing it. We're not asking this morning, do you know the gospel? Most people know at least some of the gospel. That's not the question. The question is, do you have the testimony or the gospel in yourself? And the first point I want to make is you can see that's different from just knowing about it, right? Because otherwise that would not just apply to those who believe in the Son of God. So what does this mean? It appears to be another way for John to use one of his favorite words in his gospel or any of his writings. It is the word abide, meno in the Greek, abide. And he uses this word all the time. And even though that word is not present in this passage, I think it's the exact idea in John's mind. What does it mean for you to have this testimony in yourself? Well, meno's not there, but that's the concept. It abides in you. You remember back in 1 John chapter 2, when John was writing to the different age groups and he wrote to young men. And he said, I'm writing to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God, the testimony, abides in you. Therefore, you have overcome the evil one, Satan himself. In John's gospel, Jesus told the unbelieving Jews, quote, you do not have the Father's word abiding in you. They heard it. They knew the testimony. He's right there in front of them. But he says, it's different than knowing about it. You don't have it abiding in you. Several chapters later, Jesus told his own disciples, if you abide in me and my words, his testimony about himself, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This idea of abiding everywhere in John has the idea of permanence. It's not a passing thing. It's not just a quick thing. In other words, if you're a believer this morning, the testimony, the truth, the gospel about Jesus Christ, it's not like when you go traveling, and I don't know, do you use taxis anymore? Or you get an Uber or something? When you get an Uber or you get a taxi in a city, you're in, for a little bit, you chat with a guy driving, you get out. It was a very short-lived thing. We don't say that you stayed in an Uber, although Uber probably has a housing thing too, right? We don't say you stayed in a taxi. We say you took a taxi. You took it. That was brief. And after you take your taxi, you get to your hotel slash Airbnb or whatever, and then you stay there. So why didn't you stay in the taxi, but you stayed at the hotel? 
It's all a matter of permanence. It's all a matter of you weren't in the taxi very long. You're staying in the hotel at least a night. You're remaining, or the word here, meno, you're abiding there. So you're staying there. And what this passage is saying is that everywhere in America, the gospel is, comes to people like to a taxi. Hops in. They might be very interested. Jesus said that there would be some people who would at first receive it with joy, a great interest in the gospel. But then follow up with them five years later, and it's gone. Or it's just not an evident part of their life, except maybe on a Sunday morning, and that's it. So it came in, interesting, and then it got out. You get in the taxi, you get out of the taxi. The gospel, the testimony comes in a person, and then it gets out of the person. But the difference with you, if you believe truly in the Son of God, is you're the Airbnb for the gospel. More than that, you're the permanent residence. You're the housing, the gospel, the testimony about Jesus. It's with you. It's always with you. It's not just in and out. It doesn't mean you're always consciously thinking about it, but it's literally inside you because you take it everywhere you go. It guides everything that you're doing. Before you had the testimony abiding deeply within you, you had a certain way of looking at life. You had certain goals and aspirations. A certain way you interpreted events when you watched the news or when things happened in your life. And it didn't involve Jesus. Then you believed in the Son of God. And now, everywhere you go, you encounter life. Hard things, happy things, promotions, demotions, firing everything, and not perfectly, but characteristically, you now filter what's coming to you through the testimony about Jesus Christ. The hardships that happen are tests to make you more like Christ. There is a very significant difference, don't know if you knew this, between changing a baby's diaper without the testimony in you and changing a baby's diaper with the testimony in you. The testimony remains in you even there. You can go listen to Mary Beth on the podcast talk about that, cleaning up messes, thinking about Christ. You walked into this room today as a believer having presently, not saying go get it, you have it. You have the testimony about Christ in you. Others see it, others hear it from you, not perfectly, but characteristically. Before you had the testimony in you, you went to work another day, another dollar, and you complained about the weather in the break room because that's what everybody does. But now, having the testimony in you, you may struggle with that still at times. We're all a work in progress, but something's changed. Now... Whatever you do, you do your work heartily as for the Lord and not from men, knowing that from the Lord, that's Christ, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's how you think about your work now. You carry that testimony with you into your workplace. You might be involved in a kind of work that seems incredibly dull to you. It might be really hard for you to see how most of what you do every day glorifies God. But notice verse 10, the second part of it here, a point that it's making. I know it's making it negatively, but we can put it positively. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. If you feel like your life is dull and yet you believe the testimony about Jesus Christ continually, it's in you, 
no matter what you're doing, you are glorifying God just by believing the truth about Christ. Now, there are more things we do that flow out of that faith. But notice, when you believe the truth about Christ, when you have that testimony in you, you believe it. You are saying God is not a liar. You're saying it to the whole world. God's not a liar. <laughs> Before you knew Christ, God's a liar. But knowing Christ now, you are saying by your life, changing the diaper, doing the seemingly insignificant work, because you didn't leave the testimony here at this church and then go live your life. You have the testimony in you at all times. So wherever you go, just believing the testimony and it comes out in your life, that glorifies God by showing people that what he said about his son is true. There's the first thing that you have if you're a believer and it's wonderful. You're not just sailing meaninglessly through a sea of life confused and with no anchor. You always, everywhere you go, have the truth, the gospel, the testimony about Christ in you shaping everything. So you have the testimony. That leads us now to the second thing. We move on to another delight, if you will, that is already yours. You don't have to go get it. This is in verse 11, as John's defining the testimony for us. And this is the testimony that God, and notice this word, that God gave us eternal life. It's not will give, it's gave. And that's why verse 12 says, whoever has the Son not will have, whoever has the Son has life, eternal life. Now, eternal life, mentioned in this passage, you are not yet, in one sense, fully experiencing the riches of eternal life. Because we're still mortal. That means that all of us are subject to death. We're still getting old, still got aches and pains, still have problems, diseases, death. Okay. So eternal life, when it's fully possessed, the kind of life that Christ has promised to us, it casts out all death all sickness, no more tears, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. That is eternal life when it's fully consummated, when it's fully ours in one sense, and that is future. This is what we read about famously in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, that's us right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable, that's us right now, inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, if we're not dead, still alive, we'll be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So we will experience the fullness of eternal life 
when that's true of your body, it's not a mortal one, but an immortal one, and that's not true of us yet. So there is something yet future about eternal life. This is why we can't too much fault Martha when she was having her conversation with Jesus, when he delayed to come and her brother was sick and her brother died, and Jesus came and to comfort her said, well, he'll live again. She didn't know he meant like today. And so her response was, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's not wrong. She looks forward. There will be a resurrection in the future. That's the fullness of eternal life, yes. On the other hand, she underestimated Jesus. And so Jesus' response to her was just a mild rebuke when he said, resurrection on the last day, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, there is a resurrection on the last day leading to the fullness of eternal life, but Jesus has come and is here now. He is the resurrection, so there is a sense in which you and I already have eternal life. You have it presently. You'll remember in John 17, 3, Jesus defined eternal life like this. This is eternal life, that they know you, praying to God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Not that they live forever with imperishable bodies, that's involved, but it is truly knowing God and Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in coming, already by his life and death, accomplished reconciling us to God. And that's why our passage says that this is the testimony that God gave in the past, gave us eternal life. So I'm still waiting for it. Yes, but you also have it already. So whoever has the Son has presently life, eternal life. Now, there's an exclusive connection between having life and having Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's why in our passage, John adds this last line. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If he had only said, whoever has the Son has life, someone could say, well, yes, Christians who have the Son have life, and also good Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, as long as they're living a good, decent life, they can also have life. So he adds the last line to say, it's not just that if you have the Son, you have life, but only those who have the Son have life and no one else. This is something exclusive to knowing Christ. So, do you believe in the Son of God? Truly, as he's revealed in Scripture, then right now, I promise you, you have eternal life. You have it. Here's the testimony with you. Here's eternal life with you. You brought it into this room. It's still with you. Has life. Now, I said I'm not going to be giving commands and rebukes, but I am preaching, so I guess we can. I would just say that, um, and I'm as guilty as anyone, sometimes we Christians live as if we're in a perpetual funeral of life, <laughs> you know, morose, sad, weighed down. And maybe they're legitimate things that grieve us, our own sin and the weight of that. And there is a time to grieve. 
But there's also a kind of Christianity, a kind of Christian experience that's pretty much just grieving most of the time. It's like we've inherited not life, but death. Sometimes there's a feeling among believers that the more miserable I make myself, the holier I am. <laughs> and unfortunately, some people are very successful in just how miserable they can make themselves. But it doesn't bring you any closer to holiness to make yourself miserable because what do you have? You don't have death. That would justify the dark garb and the misery. No, you have life. The Amish, you know, and I only pick on them because I come from Amish stock, but in some of their stricter forms, in a very literal sense, it does look like one ongoing funeral. There's no color permitted. There's no dancing. There's no things that even in a neutral sense give some spice to life. Intentionally, the Amish have removed many of those things, associating them with worldliness for the sake of what? Ideally, it's for the sake of spiritual mindedness so we can think about spiritual heavenly things. Therefore, now in this life, stern, hard, no color, no fun things. <laughs> I know that's an overstatement, but that can be the sense of it. And that would make sense if we had death. <laughs> to just go on living as Christians as if we're just always at a funeral. But that's not what you have. You have life. You say, well, yes, it's a hard, miserable life. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. I'll have life then. Through many tribulations, yes. But we enter the kingdom. <laughs> Emphasize that part. Right now, you have life. Jesus said, I came to give life. Give it abundantly. Reference not only to what is to come in the future, but to your life right now. With the people who know you, Say that you're someone who clearly has, presently, life. It doesn't mean that physically you have to have a great vitality and enthusiasm. It's not that. But is there something alive about you? You have life. You say, oh, no, I'm still convinced that's just future stuff. Okay. Okay, if you want to just put eternal life totally in the future, it's not that. But even if you were to do that, let me give you this example. The ancient Greeks... So much of what we think of movies and TV shows and plays is based upon theory developed by the ancient Greeks. And to make things very simple, the ancient Greeks had two categories of plays, among others, that were kind of primary. There was the tragedy and there was the comedy. And we all have ideas of what that means. Tragedy, you cry. Comedy, you laugh. But it was actually more developed than that. The idea was a tragedy is something where it starts good, almost always, and it ends really bad. And a comedy is something that starts pretty bad, and it ends really good. That was basically the definition. What happens in the middle varies. But that's the idea. So really, the ancient Greeks defined those plays by what happened at the end. If it ends happy, it's a comedy. If it ends not happy, it's a tragedy. <coughs> Excuse me. But notice, depending on what happens at the end of the story, everything along the way looks a lot different. If you know you're watching a comedy that ends happy, then when someone falls down, you laugh. Ah, 
Because this is a comedy. Why is this a comedy? He fell down. Why are you laughing at him? It ends happy. If you're watching a tragedy and it ends bad, even if the person gets a million dollars, say, that's a hooray, a million, but you know it's a tragedy. You know that's just going to make it more painful. It just causes you grief. There's no joy there. So, although we don't receive the fullness of eternal life until we have these imperishable bodies at the return of Jesus, just the fact that we have a happy ending does make life a comedy in the classical sense. And it shades or casts light upon all the experiences you have now. The hardest experiences and the most painful experiences you have now, you can endure them with joy because you're living a comedy. You know in the end eternal life. You have now life. And our lives should not be grim and morose like we're living through a funeral or a tragedy, but there should be a joy that demonstrates that we have eternal life in its earliest form, if you will. We know God, and we're excited about the fact that we'll receive it fully one day at the end. Now, this brings us then to our final point. You have the testimony in yourself. You have life right now. This final point is better than both. It's the source of both, and I don't feel worthy even to preach it. And yet there it is in the text. It's an amazing phrase in verse 12. Whoever has the Son. Testimonies about the Son. And the life, verse 11 says, is in, his, in the Son. Life is because we're in the sun. Testimonies about the sun. Everything's about the sun. But this is the most amazing part of all. You have the Son of God. So if you were made to choose between these three blessings, the testimony, life, or the sun, choose the sun. Because if you have the sun, you get the other ones. The other ones spring from this fact that Christians have the Son of God. You might think, well, what does it mean to have the Son of God? <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Avoid any thought that would equate having in this case with, say, I have a house, or I have a car, or I have shoes. That's true. You possess those items. And in our governmental system, they belong to you. There's a right that you have over those items. That's not what we're talking about. Have can mean many things, and it doesn't mean that here. You don't have Christ as if you had any sort of authority over him. He's not your possession you keep in your house or something. It's not what we mean by have. So it's shocking that he would even use these words. What does it mean that you have the Son of God? The old writers had a phrase for this, and we've lost the phrase because language changes, and I don't know what phrase to re replace it with. But the old writers, the good old Puritans, like to talk about a person having an interest in Christ. You can't say that anymore because that we have a different meaning of that. Now it just means you're kind of interested, like, who's Christ? But that's not what they meant. To have an interest in Christ meant that your life was indissolubly bound up in His. There was a connection that cannot be broken. This would not be like you saying, I have shoes. This would be like you saying, I have a mother. You don't possess your mother. You don't have authority over your mother. But you have a connection with your mother that cannot be broken. 
It's really you belong in some sense to her. She has you. And yet we can't say I have. There is a connection that I have with my mother or with any relative. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. For you to have the Son of God means that your life is bound up in His. Let me ask you, if that's true and you have the Son of God, what else is there that you're wanting to have in life? <laughs> I know there's different meanings for have. But the idea is, you have everything. You have God. Is there something that's the next level up from you having God? Oh, I have God, and now I'll get a promotion, and then I'll be complete. Oh, I have God, and now if I could get a husband or a wife or children and a dog, then I'll be complete. What's the next step up after you have God? There's no next step up. And every one of you who believes in the Son of God has the Son of God. It's really hard for us not to get lost in the American impulse, which is to move your lifestyle up. It's, it's the impulse. It's almost irresistible in our country. I don't know if that's the American dream or what it is. But if you get a raise, you push the lifestyle up as high as you can push it to the max. And then you look forward to the time when you can push the lifestyle up. It doesn't matter if you have a few kids, a lot of kids, single, married, makes no difference. We're always pushing the lifestyle up as if there's no top to this. We've just got to keep going, 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 going. We've got to have more things. The leech is two daughters. Give and give. <laughs> That's the American way. But you already have if you get other things, wow, that's really great, but not that interesting. To have the Son of God, very interesting, <laughs> eternally interesting. Other things, hope you get them. It's okay if you don't, but to have the Son of God. What else is there but to have the Son of God? To have the Son of God and yet live your life as if there are other things you're craving, you need them to be satisfied, relationships or job or people, things, whatever. To live as if you need those things and then you'll be satisfied. It's like a married man. A happily married man isn't looking around saying, oh, what have I done? I've closed off the options of every other woman and I only have one woman. Husbands don't say that. Because a happily married man just says, whoa, I've got one woman. Can you believe this? I don't need any more. If you're happily in Christ, you have the Son of God. Sure, there are other things out there. Not that interesting. Because to have the Son of God is to have absolutely everything. I'm not putting some new rule on you. I'm not saying, oh, don't get whatever it was you're going to buy, Apple product, whatever. I don't care. I'm not saying you can't ever do that. It's not the point. The point is you don't need it. You don't need the truck. Guys, you don't need the truck. You can buy the truck. I don't care. You don't need it. You don't need the new whatever there is. <laughs> you already have presently the Son of God. This is why in the 23rd Psalm we pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It doesn't mean desire. It means I don't lack. I'm not going to lack anything. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. If you have God, you have everything. So Jesus this morning looks at all the things you have and all the things you wish you had, waves his hand over them and says to you, everyone who drinks of this water 
will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. To think that you need something else after you have the Son of God is like to stand at the gas pump with your hand holding the handle after your tank is already full and the sweet, expensive gasoline runs down the side of your car, over your shoes, and you just keep holding it because you want more. It's already full. You already have the Son of God. What else do you need? You need this problem to be out of your life? You don't need that. It'd be great, but you don't need that. You have the Son of God. You have the testimony. You brought it in. You'll take it out of here. You have eternal life. It's in you now. You brought it in. You'll take it out of here. You have the Son of God. You brought Him with you today. You will take Him out of here. You do not need to chase the satisfaction and fullness out there somewhere waiting for you. You already have it within you. So have what you have. And you'll find an immense joy.